It's Wednesday, September the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In four days' time, Germans go to the polls in a federal election, which will ultimately lead to the appointment of the country's first new chancellor in 16 years. It is still far from clear who that chancellor will be, although polls currently suggest that the favourite is the leader of the Social Democratic SPD party, Olaf Scholz. But it is a fascinating election with a range of variables and multiple possible outcomes when it comes to what sort of government will ultimately be formed in Europe's largest and most economically powerful country. Despite Germany's important role in our own lives and politics here, its political landscape and electoral system is much less familiar to us than those of, say, the UK or the United States. So today we want to look at all of that. And to do that, I'm delighted to be joined by our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scully. Hi, Derek. Hello there, Hugh. Um, I suppose we stay up to date at the moment the state of the polls uh, as we're four or five days out what where do the parties stand the main parties stand well effectively they're neck and neck um it's been up and down i mean in the spring we had the green party were uh, topping the polls and then angela merkel's christian democrats the center right took over but in the last month it's really been the race of the center left the social democrats and olaf scholz he's the outgoing finance minister in merkel's cabinet and uh, he's now become the man to beat the the party. He really has some momentum. They have a, a very interesting campaign, um, reform and respect. We can go into that later. But um, what's happened in the last few days is that uh, Merkel's CDU in second place, they're catching up. They're now three points behind in opinion polls, but the opinion polls have a 2.5% error rate. So um, with, with a few days left to go, um, Merkel has joined the race to get her chosen successor, Armin Laschet, back into the chancery so she can hand him the keys. So really at this stage, everything's to play for. And it's it's really the most interesting election I can ever remember. And it's tight. It's almost within the margin of error, as you say, and and, and numbers seem to be shifting right now. I also detect, uh, just reading some reports over the last week or so, there is a certain amount of, or a certain lack of confidence among German pollsters. How, how accurate have they been in the past? Oh, no, they've been way off, like in most countries in the past. I mean, there's always the issue of, you know, what do people tell the pollsters? What do they think pollsters want to know? And, um, you know, in Germany, there's always been an issue of calling landlines and many people don't even have landlines anymore. So you're going to, can you really be sure you've got the right sample? Um, and there's also a big issue at the moment. Uh, people are saying several things that they just cannot they cannot um, predict. For instance, um, many people in the recent years from various parties were all voting for the CDU because they liked Angela Merkel. They wanted her back. So the reason she secured four terms in office since 2005 is this Merkel effect. People were voting, for, they were holding their noses and voting for the CDU uh, just to get her. But now that she's not on the ballot paper, and she's, this is the first time this has ever happened in post-war politics, um, the, the incumbent isn't being re-elected. Nobody's quite sure where those votes will go. And then there's a second issue they're calling CDU shame, that many people, um, they, they're not going to admit that they're going to vote for the CDU. It's almost become uncool or embarrassing because the CDU without Merkel is kind of looking rather old and tired and not really got a lot to say. So will those people basically hold their noses, CDU voters, and effectively vote for the party again? So there's lots of unknowns. And um, because Merkel is walking away, as I said, that is just creating an unprecedented situation. So the polling agencies are being very cautious this time around. 
Now, one of the things about the German political system is that there isn't necessarily the direct connection that you get in some other parliamentary systems between being the leader of the party and being the party's um, candidate for a chancellor. And there's a little bit more shifting around and, uh, than there is, say, in Ireland or or the United Kingdom or other countries in, in relation to that. And of course, the CDU, uh, Armin Laschet, their candidate, is their, is their second candidate for a chancellor. They had one earlier and jettisoned her. Does all of this point to the fact that Merkel and the CDU made a terrible mistake in in breaking really with the tradition of most parliamentary governments handing power to a successor a year or two years before the next general election. It is it is an issue. It's already started to become an issue this last week of of, of the campaign that senior figures within Merkel's own party have turned on her and said it was a mistake. In 2018, after some regional election defeats, she realised, OK, my time is up, and she handed over or said she was stepping down as party leader. And basically since then, the party's been struggling. They found they elected one leader. She didn't work out. They elected Armin Laschet only this year. And really, the time they should have been using to discuss policy, they've actually been trying to find a leader. And um, some people say this is a terrible mistake because now in the election, Election campaign, he's trying to run for chancellor, but he's not able to criticize his predecessor because she's still in office. And she's only, Merkel is only very, very, very resistant to the idea of campaigning with him. Um, she's doing it this week. But again, so they, CDU figures are saying his hands were tied because of this split between the leadership and the party. But it should be said, um, this has happened before. And even Olaf Scholz, he's leading in polls. He's the man to beat. He's trying to present sort of a new rebooted social democracy in, in, in Germany. But he's not the leader of the party. So questions have been asked once he's in, if he gets into the chancellery, how, what relationship will he have with his party? Because his party, uh, the ascendant camp in his party is far more left-wing than he is. So will he have the last word or will they? So just because you become chancellor or just because you're leader of the party or you're leading the campaign doesn't necessarily mean that you have the final say in your politics. So it's a lot of moving parts. So I think we're all going to become German experts in German politics in the weeks and months to come. Well, let's try and educate ourselves a little bit. I want to take a quick run through the main parties in contention and particularly the ones that are like are possible coalition partners in a in a future government. And let's start actually with the SPD, given that they're the biggest party in in the polls right now. The story of the party over the last 30 years will be familiar from, from other countries, a social democratic party which shifted to the centre or even some would say to the right in the 1990s. The, their, their last chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, introduced a series of, of economic reforms which were essentially seen as being as being right-wing, even though he was the leader of a social democratic party. And arguably the party has suffered ever since. It, it's lost some of its base. I heard our colleague, our London editor, former Berlin correspondent Dennis Staunton last week, talking about, uh, talking about the British Labour Party. And he suggested, he pointed towards Germany and towards the United States for a new model for social democratic parties, which might be emerging, where the front man, I suppose, is relatively centrist or moderate, but behind them there's a party that is actually somewhat more radical and has more radical proposals on the table. Do you think there's any truth in that? Yes, definitely. I mean, the SPD uh, has really spent the last. It's it's it has been in power effectively, except for one term since 1998. Uh, first, it was a seven-year leading co the coalition for seven years with Schröder, and then for three of the last four terms, it's been the junior coalition partner under Angela Merkel. And many people have said it really should have been on the analyst couch or in opposition because after those reforms, many people viewed it was a it was a betrayal of the working class, a betrayal of everything. Um, 
um, the SPD stood for. Um, and you know, I'm sure this is, this is a third way. Either we reform ourselves or the markets will reform us. But that didn't really cut much ice with much of its base. So it's really been in an identity crisis since then. And to be honest, it actually hasn't resolved that identity crisis. If anything, its success at the moment has really just pa- papered over a lot of the cracks. And it'll be interesting if they win, if they can resolve this riddle, how in an era of global markets, uh, in an era where the traditional working class no longer exists, um, how do you make a new pitch to new people? And Schultz has tried this, Olaf Schultz has tried this in the campaign by talking about respect. You know, people are clapping for frontline health workers. He said, I'd prefer to give them a pay increase, if you don't mind. His rivals are talking, we need to uh, lower taxes for the the rich and create some sort of a a trickle-down effect in the post-pandemic era. He's saying the trickle-down effect never worked. We're we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to increase taxes on the rich. Um, He's less radical than uh, some of the left parties, but he's trying to just basically do... Traditional SPD reloaded, but yeah, it's it's unclear if he has found the winning formula to revive social democracy across Europe because social democracy across Europe is effectively an endangered species. So it's all to play for. And yes, we don't really know because once they're in power, you know, appetites are uh, raised and the leftists in the party may try to push for more in coalition talks and in power. It's very striking when you look at the, the the trends of the polls over the last six months. There was a very dramatic shift that happened. I suppose it's about two, two and a half months or so ago where the, the, the CDU had been comfortably in the lead, five or six points. The S- SPD was definitely seen as sort of, I mean, you mentioned that we'll come to the Greens in a moment, was seen as the third party at best and in, a, in an inevitable slump. And then suddenly they jumped. What was it that caused them to jump at that point? Many SPD people I've spoken to don't actually know themselves. I think the most convincing thing I've heard is, well, two things. Number one, and they've been profiting from other people's weaknesses. You know, two months ago, we had the floods in Western Germany. And uh, Armin Laschet, who's at the moment, he's the minister president of of, uh, North Rhine-Westphalia, one of the state's hit by the floods. He was pictured in the background of television pictures, sniggering and laughing with friends. And most people will say, okay, it's a stressful time. You might just be sort of laughing off some of the stress. But I think for many people that suddenly realize, is this the man we want meeting Joe Biden and sitting down with Vladimir Putin? And I think many people said, hmm, he seems like a decent guy. I'm not sure if he has the stature to be chancellor. I think that was one issue. And the second, people were returning from their holidays. And I think they finally began reading the newspapers, looking at the news, and finally it emotionally hit them that Angela Merkel is going. She's walking out the door. She's not coming back. And once people started to actually emotionally realize what that meant, they had to reposition themselves politically. So when you had that combined with these images of Armin Laschet laughing, Olaf Scholz suddenly looked like, he just looked like more like a chancellor. He looked more like a statesman. And he's really been milking that. He's presented himself. He's sort of adapted, even stolen Merkel's sort of rhetorical clothes his very dimmed down appearance. You know, in, in Germany, you don't win an election by being sort of a clown-like figure or being a, a crazy narcissist. You you do it by sort of dimming down the bulb and becoming even less less exciting or less humorous than you might actually be. And he's done that quite well. So I think it's a mixture of other people's weaknesses and then his own um, his, his own successful ability to sort of present himself, I am the continuity candidate. 
Yeah, I think we know that other countries prefer clown-like figures and crazy narcissists, all right. But in relation to this, what you're saying there, I think, is that that old truism about um, governments uh, governments lose elections rather than oppositions winning them, that seems true. Of course, he has the added advantage is that he is also a continuity candidate. He is the finance minister at the moment. So he's not an unknown quantity, far from it. Well, this is the, this is the, the greatest conjuring trick that uh, he's, he, you know, Laschet is struggling because, you know, every time he says we need to do more, people say, well, you had 16 years to do more. Uh, whether it's on, I mean, German internet is shocking. Uh, it's, it's transport infrastructure is crumbling. Anytime he says anything on these, these people will say, well, yeah, you had 16 years, why should we believe you now? Whereas with Schultz, because the SPD was the junior partner, um, they're sort of managing to steal away from their responsibility. Instead, they're highlighting the things that they did do in government progressive things, like the minimum wage, which they want to increase again. Uh, marriage equality was was down to them. Um, childcare, improving childcare and so on. So they're saying, yes, we're responsible for all the nice things that you saw happening in the last years. And if you want more of that, vote for us. But um, yeah, and Scholz, of course, he's the man in in a crisis who's dealt out. He's by the end of this year, he will have basically paid out 400 billion euro in pandemic emergency assistance. So who wouldn't like a guy with a checkbook like that? One of the things I've always been intrigued by and I've never fully understood about German politics is the CDU, the largest party, the natural party of government, but it's actually a coalition party. There's the CDU and the CSU, which is a separate party in Bavaria, and the two are yoked together like Siamese twins, I think, but but it has a slightly different type of a personality. It always has. It's had different types of leaders. And it seems that some people think that the current leader of the CSU in Bavaria would have been a better uh, overall candidate for chancellor for the party as a whole. Yes, I mean, it was a real, the C, uh, CDU really had sort of a, a terrible choice to make in the spring. Everyone knows that Marcus Sudo, who's the leader of this junior party, the CSU, they've been in power effectively since the Second World War in Bavaria. Um, they know that he's just the bigger, he's, you know, he can fill the house. He's the big circus tent figure. But he really is, um, they were afraid that he is effectively a populist, a real uh, dark arts populist, and that he would have actually take control or take take over the CDU the way he dominates his own party in Bavaria. And so senior figures were worried that they could win the election but lose their party to him so that they chose a more centrist candidate. And even now they say, look, we always knew he wasn't go- Armin Laschet wasn't going to be the most exciting campaigner. We just felt he was the best chancellor. But many people are saying, yes, but to be a chancellor, you have to be able to campaign first. So the big question is, um, yeah, did they make a mistake there? I mean, the thing about the CSU is you have to imagine that Bavaria is a bit like Kerry. It's a very independently minded country with a huge um, yeah, chip on his shoulder. It's sort of a confidence flip side, uh, massive confidence and massive lack of confidence that sort of in, one feeds the other. And Bavaria believes it's the best country, uh, best state in Germany, it's the best managed, it's the most prosperous and so on. Um, but whether or not that could be translated to a national, most people around Germany are sick and tired of hearing how great Bavaria is. A bit like, you know, certain figures from Kerry, Bohr, everyone else in the country. It works in Bavaria, would it work nationally? So it's not sure that it would have worked, but I think the CDU said we're not, we don't want to become the hostage uh, of Marcus Söder. So they, they took this tactical choice and now they have to live with it. I want to apologise to all our Kerry listeners for that un- un- unnecessary slur. But moving on to the, I mean, you mentioned the Greens at the at, at the start, and there was a point um, earlier, right at the start of this year, when it was even suggested that the Greens might uh, win enough votes to actually uh, supply the, the Chancellor. That seems, seems most unlikely now, but it also seems most unlikely that any government that will be formed won't have the Greens in it. Exactly. I mean... Uh, 
climate change is coming to German politics, it just it just depends on the coalition that we will get. If they if the SPD win the election, they will be in pole position for coalition talks. So the likelihood is that they will join power part um, power with the Greens. If they do really well, they'd have a two party coalition like in the Schroeder days. More likely, they'll have to bring in another party. We've yet to talk about the Liberal Free Democrats. They're more a pro business party, so they would sort of dampen some of the Green uh, enthusiasm and some of their policies. But it would be sort of a centre-left, progressive, green-tinted coalition. If Laschet pulls it off and the CDU finish first, then it would be the CDU and the FDP, the pro-business party, plus the Greens. So pushing through their climate policies would be a tougher sell. But to be honest, the, the voters have been the toughest sell for climate policies because all the polls say, you know, the, uh, climate concerns are uppermost in people's minds. It's with 30 percent, 30 plus percent. It's the issue most Germans are most worried about. But when you dig down into the numbers, are you prepared to pay more for petrol? What about uh, surcharges on this? What about um, uh, the Greens are calling for a speed limit on the autobahn to limit emissions? Oh, no, people don't want that. So, you know, once you drill down into the detail, Germans are perhaps less, perhaps like a lot of us, a lot less green in their dark heart than they would claim to be when the pollsters come calling. Although that said, the Greens in Germany are the most successful Green Party in in Europe, I think, um, and have been for um, for quite some time. I mean, looking at it from Ireland, I do wonder: do any of the tensions that we see in the Green movement here exist in the Green Party there? There used to be this traditional division between fundies and realos, a, a sort of uh, hardcore supporters of of really radical environmental measures on the one hand, and much more pragmatic um, political orientation on the other. The um, the realos seem to have won. Is that right or is it more complicated in terms of the internal dynamics of the Green Party? It's sort of true. I mean, the the, the candidate, Annalena Baerbock, she's a 40-year-old, she is very much from the realist camp. But if you look at the programme, there's quite a strong leftist streak in there. So um, I think the, the Greens have put in a remarkable campaign. I mean, for a time they were leading and they were talking about a Green Chancellor and so on. And while that may have dimmed, um, I think the Greens have just matured as a party. They've seen that um, they're trying to make a pitch to people, but also to business and saying, look, the business model of tomorrow is how do you transform countries, industrial countries into climate neutral industrial countries? And they're saying in the campaign that Germany has always been good at building technology and selling it to others. Why can't we do that for climate change? So many businesses have come on board and the Greens are kind of encouraging them to think big, think ambitious, say that, you know, this has always been, you know, this is in the tradition of, of the Siemens uh, and the Bosch to to grab the next opportunity and run with it. So their fingerprints will be all over the new government. It just depends on on, on how much voters trust them. Uh, But it's really a turning point, I think, either way, because no matter what happens, I really can't see a future government without the Greens. Now, Back in the olden days, before the German political scene was as fragmented as it is now, they had a kind of a two big party, one little party kind of a system, not unlike what existed in Ireland at at that time, where power alternated between the CDU and the SPD. But from time to time, a coalition partner was required. And that natural coalition party was a smaller party called, the who you mentioned, the Free Democrats, the FDP, who are kind of, when I kind of think of who they are and what they stand for, I kind of think of the old progressive Democrats here. They're sort of, they would present themselves as classical liberals, um, pro-business, pro-free market, pro-free speech. Is that right? Definitely. If you throw in sort of a bizarre leadership cult, you've got, you know, it's it's the progressive Democrats, 
uh, all over. Uh, and yeah, they've 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 had good times. They've had bad times. I mean, they used to be the party that made a, a chancellor chancellor, and it, it could be that they're back to that again. I mean, the 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 landscape is fragmenting. We're probably going to have a three party instead of a two party coalition, and the Free Democrats are waiting for people to come calling. And um, they they they've had a good pandemic of all the parties because as well as being pro business, they were always pro civil rights and civil liberties. And they're saying they they were the strongest voice saying that these pandemic measures were really, they were just egregiously harmful to business and to civil civil rights and so on. So um, people, I think, were grateful as, you know, opposition as correction. Um, so that will probably stand in their stead on election day. And they, they've made an incredible comeback because in 2017, they almost got into power. The CDU with Merkel and the Greens were ready to form a coalition with them, but they walked away saying it's better not to govern than to govern badly. I think they sensed that, you know, Merkel was running out of steam and they weren't convinced by the programme. But really people said, guys, you've just spent weeks talking with these people and now you're walking away. So they really dived in political support, but they've made quite a comeback. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, if people turn away from the business people, if they turn away from the CDU and back the Liberal Free Democrats as the correction in what they see as the inevitable traffic-like coalition. So that's the SPD red, the Greens and the FDP, which are the yellows. So if the business people back the FDP instead of the CDU, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's certainly a win for Germany's Liberals. One thing that might be interesting from a European and an Irish perspective is that um, I understand the the FDP are not very keen at all on some of the fiscal and economic measures at a European level, which have been proposed over the last couple of years, and they prefer the kind of policy which pursued was pursued uh, in the in the early part of the financial crisis. They're not keen in putting German money where its mouth is, I suppose, in terms of the European Central Bank and uh, easing the, the the fiscal pressures across Europe. No, I mean, in simple terms, Germany's centre rights, so the CDU, CSU and the FDP, they all insist that, um, you know, everything must stay as it was. We must get back to stability, uh, the stability and growth pact limits on debt and, and, and deficits. Uh, and this idea that the pandemic, where the European Union is now able to issue debt uh, for emergency pandemic assistance, that this was very much a one-off and we're not getting into the business of allowing the EU to to issue its own debt. That's the centre-right. The centre-left with Schultz and the Greens and others are saying, no, we're in a new era. We need to be more progressive. Um, we need to have a rethink about debt and deficits and we need to say well like in running up deficits to invest in future technology and climate change is an investment in our future so the classic left right debate you're getting but to have a potential chancellor speaking in this way uh, particularly when you've got someone like Emmanuel Macron who's been pushing for reforms and progressive integration measures for years and just getting a nine from Berlin that's it's a really interesting time for European politics although interestingly I mean like in other countries European politics never really features in domestic debates here, and it certainly hasn't featured in any of the television debates. But I think it will be a major issue once uh, the dust settles in Berlin. And so the Free Democrats are hovering, I think, around 10%, 11% or so, as are uh, another party which will not figure in the uh, negotiations for government, and that's the alternative for Deutschland, the AFD, the far-right or radical right party, who seem to have peaked a couple of years ago, but they have stabilised at around this 10% point now. Exactly. Although another note of caution, most people who vote for the AFD won't admit it when the pollsters come calling. So they tend to underperform in polls. But you're right. I mean, they they emerged during the euro crisis when there's this huge opposition here to bond buying and bailouts. Uh, and then they really uh, hit their stride with as an anti-immigrant um, uh, 
uh, Islamophobic party during the refugee crisis when Germany took in a million people and they said this is just ridiculous and you know knife wielding foreigners and rapists and so on. So that really took off. They they captured almost 14% last time around. They are the largest party in the outgoing Bundestag, which is quite a statement. But yeah, they, they're struggling now. Nothing really has caught fire. They tried to be, you know, sometimes they were in favor of uh, lockdown and then they were opposed to lockdown. They never really, they never really, uh, they never really um, captured the, the anti-pandemic or the conspiracy vote. So they're really struggling. But yeah, it could be that they, they have, they've established themselves as a firm 10%, but that's 10% that isn't available to other parties, in particular the Christian Democrats, because while this, the AFD is very much increasingly in the hands of far-right extremists, there is sort of a Tweedy, liberal, conservative, former CDU um, vote in there who left the party in protest at the EU rescue measures and the refugee policy. So that's voters that might be tempted back to the CDU and elsewhere. Um, that could be why we're seeing this, the AFD sinking, but there's still a core base there. And actually in this election, what's been rather depressing to see is extremist parties, even more extreme, the AFD coming out, a new party called the Third Way, which is openly neo-Nazi, you know, putting a poster saying, hang the Greens, um, uh, and other, you know, doing uh, doing campaigns in shopping precincts with, you know, bodies, you know, sh- um, dummies, shop window dummies pretending to be the other political parties and covering them in blood. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a more extremist wing coming and the AfD has really opened the door both politically and rhetorically to more extremes in German politics. The German system, of course, is, was built after the Second World War deliberately to try and keep extremes out of the system. So they have this 5% limit that if a party comes in at under 5%, uh, it won't be elected to the Bundestag. And that's always had a kind of a calming effect, I suppose it's fair to say, on German politics, even though a larger number of parties now pass that limit than used to. Yes, I mean, the 5% limit, um, there are some exceptions. If there's a party in the in Schleswig-Holstein on the Danish border and they to represent the Danish minority, I mean, this part of Germany has gone back and forth between Germany and Denmark, so they don't uh, meet, they don't have to pass the 5% um, limit. And also you can get into the parliament without 5% of the vote, but you just won't have a, a parliamentary party, so you have fewer rights. This happened a few years ago to the left party. But other than that, yes, it is a, it has been a very stable uh, party, parliamentary party and you have the federal vote this year but you also have um, state elections on Sunday there'll be two state elections in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern which is in the northeast and in the city-state of Berlin so there's always state elections going on somewhere so what that means is Germany is permanently in an election cycle which in other countries means that no work is done but generally what means in Germany is that politicians can't promise too much because if you're promising something somewhere, somebody else later will be elected and the, the dynamics would make that impossible. So it is a huge, I mean, it's the system that the Allies imposed on Germany after the war, drawing on Germany's historical uh, decentralized, you know, kingdoms. Um, but it, it does lend itself to an extremely, extremely stable system. And it's worth really pointing out, while everyone is fighting over ideas here, it's, you know, when you look at the parties on offer and the politicians on offer, Germany has got a fairly good bunch of politicians. You know, not everyone is everyone's taste, but they are sane. They are not populist. They are responsible. They are consensus oriented. And, you know, 10 years ago, we would not have been, this would not have been a, 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 worth pausing for thought, but it is now, which shows you how much the world has changed. And yes, the German political world has changed, but this is really old fashioned politics. It is politics about content and personality, but it's not a politics about, you know, 
insanity, which we have seen in other countries. And, you know, we've seen the polarization in Britain. Uh, we see what's coming down our way in France next year. So in the middle of all this, Germany is almost like a nostalgic throwback. And to, just to round off the various parties which are likely to figure in the in the Bundestag, there you you mentioned the traffic light uh, coalition, which is red, yellow, and green, and there is talk of the Jamaica coalition, which is black, meaning the CDU, um, along with the Greens and the FDP, yellow and green. The the uh, the SPD haven't ruled out a red red green coalition, should the numbers be right, and the second red would be Linke, the the left party. Tell us about them. And left party, if you go back a few years, uh, trace their back, they are the inheritors of the East German Communist Party, the Social Unity Party, SED. Um, so the their assets were passed over to another party, the PDS, and that PDS became, after the Schroeder reforms, SPD people left the SPD and joined forces with the PDS to become the Linke. Uh, and they are in government in many federal states in Germany, and they've proven to be a relatively safe pair of hands. They're, they're in the ruling coalition here in Berlin, but they've never been tested at federal level, and um, people have been talking about this sort of left SPD Green Coalition as a possibility, and even the Christian Democrats are using it some sort of a, a sort of a reds under the bed scare. But really, the uh, the Linke are quite a divided party themselves, a bit like the Greens. They've got a realist and a fundamentalist camps who are really at war with each other, and on crucial issues that are crucial for a federal government, things like NATO and the EU, they would you know they want to abolish NATO and create sort of a global security alliance with Russia. Um, on the EU, they're really not sure whether Germany should be in the EU or not. So if you haven't got, if you if you are at odds with the German establishment on those key issues, you really don't have a lot to say in coalition talks. So is it fair to say that say, the SPD are just keeping that option open for the purposes of their public positioning in this campaign? In other words, possibly not to lose lose uh, votes from people who might who might like that option, but that. From what you're saying, I'm guessing you're saying that that's a very unlikely coalition option. Well, both the SPD and the Greens have sizable left camps. And if you, as the Chancellor presumptive Olaf Scholz, ahead of the voting day, say we're not going to govern with the left, you're probably going to provoke a rupture in the party you've been trying to avoid in your own party. So just for the sake of, you know, he said we're not going to go in with anyone who wants us to leave NATO. So it's fairly clear what he wants, but he hasn't officially ruled it out. Um, but uh, we'll see on election day whether the warning that this could could happen, the warning, the reds under the bed scare from the CDU, whether that was effective or not, how much people believe he could, if push came to shove, go that way, uh, which would, of course, be unprecedented in post-war German politics to, to go into coalition with the party that built the Berlin Wall. Now, I want to get into the weeds a little bit of what will actually happen on Election Day, which is on Sunday, and the, the, the German electoral system, which is which is highly proportional. You know, the, the, the views of the people will be pretty accurately reflected uh, in in the election, which is not always true of some systems, particularly first past the post. I was looking at the results of the Canadian election at the weekend, and really they, they bore only a limited resemblance to how people had, had actually voted. But the German system is very proportional, but it works in a very particular kind of a way. So when your neighbours around you in Berlin go to vote on Sunday, they will have two votes. Exactly. Now, you need to sit down and get a cold flannel. This is where it gets complicated. So you asked for a detail. Let's do detail. So um, uh, German, the German election system is 
tries desperately hard to be fair, but it's an interesting example of how when you try to be too fair, you can also end up being unfair. So you have two votes. You One of your votes is for a list for the party. So I'll vote for this party. And they've put together a list of candidates and they will choose the candidates from that list depending on how many votes they get. The second vote you have on your ballot paper is for the direct candidate. So you like the Green Party guy from your, your neighbourhood. So you vote for them. Uh, the parliament has 598 seats. Half of those seats are reserved for the list candidates. Half of the seats are reserved for the direct candidates. But here's what happens. What happens if your party performs very well with direct candidates? You've just got strong personalities around the country and you get more you get more direct candidates than actually you're entitled to because how many seats you get in parliament is defined by the list proportion of the vote. So if you get 15% of the vote by the list, but you actually got 20% uh, direct candidates, what happens to the direct candidates who technically, because of the proportional system, the divvy up of seats in Parliament, actually aren't entitled to their seats? Well, they get to keep their seats. And what you have is, I told you the detail was coming, you get what they call overhang mandates. So you have MPs in addition to their proportional vote. So what you end up just getting is more and more seats. If you visit the Bundestag, uh, they have a really ingenious seating system. It's not like, you know, leather covered benches elsewhere. They have individual seats. And if you look in the carpet, you'll see holes. And depending on how many seats there are, how many MPs there are in the parliament, they can add extra seats. But um, we're up to, um, it's around 700, over 700 seats now because of these direct mandates. And they've been trying for years to try and limit this because they say, you know, at some point the parliament is no longer able to do its job. But uh, their changes really have, uh, there's a German word called for and you try to improve something, you end up making it worse. So now we're talking about, we might even getting towards 800 or 900 seats. So there really aren't even enough holes in the floor of the Bundestag for these people. So I'm not sure whether it'll be standing room only or what, but it's because of this, they really try to be fair. Uh, it can sometimes, um, it can have the opposite effect. So it'll be interesting to see how big the new parliament is because of this two vote system, because the way things are going, we could be, German parliament could be second only in size to China. I found this, I was trying to get my head around this and reading it, and I must have to admit, I still found it a bit dizzying. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I fully understand exactly the technicalities of how it works. But is this increasing overhang, is this down to the fact, ultimately, that there's now six or seven parties in contention, as opposed to two or three previously? Or is there some other factor at play? No, that's definitely it. And it, it actually, the overhang system also helps the larger parties because if you're a larger party, the likelihood of you having popular candidates in your in, in various constituencies who will get the direct vote is just higher. You're just a bigger party machine. Um, and these parties, these larger parties, they'll say, well, why would we want to give up our privileges? So they, they, in many reform attempts, uh, and there have been several, and the Constitutional Court has ordered them to do something about this, the larger parties really don't, haven't really seen the need to be magnanimous and agree to anything that would leave them with fewer of these direct seats. So it's a mixture. The, the party scene is getting more fragmented, but also the larger parties have to make a sacrifice, but they don't want to. Yeah, I must say, to be fair, Germany is the largest country in Europe by, you know, by, by quite a stretch, so it probably should. Mm, but a 900-seat parliament is quite something. <laughs> well, I was, I, I, funny, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation before we started, and I said if they had the Irish system of the, the ratio between elected representatives and the population, there'd be 2,500 seats. <laughs> in the Bundestag. So, you know, imagine imagine what, what, what that would be like. It'd be great for Kerry, yeah. <laughs> okay, there's Kerry again. So what um, what happens then after the election? If uh, is, is it very important 
as to whether the CDU or SPD comes first. In some systems, the head of state calls on the largest party to attempt to form a a government first. Is that the way it works in Germany or does it work differently? Yes, that's usually what happens. So whoever finishes first would probably get the the magic talking coalition stick and they'll go off and be sent to a room. And uh, you'll have exploratory talks, uh, which will go on for a while. So that's this lot of... Uh, playing hard to get for a few weeks and then they start firm coalition talks with somebody then they'll move on to somebody else I would say you know we could probably be coming to Christmas I mean Angela Merkel will probably still be chancellor in uh, Christmas at least that's what the pessimists are saying there's one interesting thing coming up this election which hasn't come up for a while and the CDU they're already you know licking their wounds as if they've already lost the election but some of them were saying this week that you know of course the party that finishes first doesn't automatically be the party who's who who has the chancellor the chancellery Um, because the SPD with Willy Brandt and Helmut Schmidt two SPD chancellors in the past they actually finished second in their elections and they nevertheless became co- uh, chancellor because they had the, the coalition options. So um, the CDU this week, it sounded a little bit defeatist talk to me, but they said, well, we could still finish second and still form a coalition. Um, technically, that's possible. It has happened in the past, but the last few years have shown that usually the party that finishes first, no matter how tight it is, and it was a minuscule lead that Angela Merkel had in 2005, but it was still enough that she had... She had um, the mandate to to lead coalition talks. So depending on who wins, that's how, but it's, it's you know, three-party coalitions haven't been tried here before. So, you know, lots of complicating factors. So, yeah, I expect about a week or 10 days of excitement after Sunday's election. And then everything will go quiet for quite some time. And it's fair to say, really, that everything's in the balance, isn't it? Because with all these parties we've discussed, and certainly all the ones that are in contention to be in a traffic light or a Jamaica coalition or whatever, a a, a point or two here or there uh, can make a big difference to to, to what's achievable and, and what ends up happening. Oh, definitely. I mean, the SPD is almost worried now that they've peaked too soon and that they're a little bit too confident that they now have everything to lose. The CDU is hoping that it can catch up. I mean, Schröder really caught up in his second term. He, 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 he Basically, he had two times of re-election. Once he succeeded at the last minute to get back in, the second time he almost succeeded, he almost thwarted Angela Merkel in 2005. So the CDU are hoping they can do the same now. Um, Armin Lasch, their candidate, was the underdog in 2017 when he became the regional leader in North Rhine-Westphalia. So he's hoping he can do that again. Um, but um, the CDU, really, their worry is that they actually won't be able to motivate enough voters to go out to vote because many of their voters might be so disheartened at what they see on offer and also so depressed that Merkel is no longer there. How do you get them out to vote? So how many of their voters they can mobilise will be key, um, I think, on Sunday's election. And finally, Derek, maybe you could tell us, for people who are logging in on on Sunday evening, what kind of time can they expect to start seeing results and how long do those results take to come in? Well, the polls close here uh, at 6pm, so there'll be 5pm in Ireland. Uh, And you'll have immediate exit polls from the main broadcasters. What then happens is about an hour and a half, two hours later, you'll start to see the first um, projections based on actual results. Um, but usually um, by about 11 o'clock in the evening, you've, you've got a, a, a relatively good idea of where things are, or at least the trends. So things tend to be, um, the counts are all decentral, so they happen quite quickly. It is a paper vote. Um, and there's the, the one other uncertainty I should have mentioned is there's been quite a large postal vote, and that will, only, that will be counted afterwards. So if that's a huge vote, and many people are thinking because of the pandemic it will be, and that could also swing things after 
after election night. So, as I said, lots of uncertainty and a very tight race. So, you know, a dream for a journalist, I have to say. Indeed, and you can follow it all on irishtimes.com and you can follow Derek Scally's coverage of German politics on irishtimes.com and in the Irish Times print newspaper. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks very much to Derek. Apologies to the people of Kerry and thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We're going to be back in your feed very soon. Do remember you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. See you very soon. 